Well, we are in between sermon series right now, and so I wanted to take this week to look at one of my personal favorite books in the Bible, which is uh, the book of Jonah. I love this book. Uh, In fact, I would say that if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of experience reading the Bible, this is one of the first books that I would encourage you to read. It only takes a few minutes to read it. It's just four chapters. In my Bible, it's just two pages. Uh, And if you study it, I promise you that you will realize that the Bible is more subversive and funny and profound than you probably thought. Um, If you are familiar at, at all with the story of Jonah, which I imagine many of you probably are, it's a book that gets preached on quite a bit. In fact, I think in this church it's been preached on twice in the last five years. Uh, not by me, so that's why I, I just I can't help myself because I love this book so much. So um, hopefully you're not tired of it yet. Um, but if you're familiar at all with the story, you probably know the gist of it, right? Uh, Jonah is told by God to go to the city of Nineveh and be a prophet to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah does not want to go. So he runs in the other direction. He ends up on a boat at some point, and then he ends up in the the ocean, and he's swallowed up by a big fish, and then he's stuck in the fish for three days. The fish vomits him up onto dry land, and then Jonah finally comes around. He goes, he preaches to the Ninevites. The Ninevites repent, and God spares them. Now, nothing about that summary that I just shared is false, but it's incomplete. If that summary is all that we think about when we think of the book of Jonah, I think we have missed the main point of the story. A lot of sermons that are preached on Jonah emphasize this idea that you can't run away from God, right? Jonah tried to run away from God, and God sent a big fish to eat him and course correct him. So don't run away from God, because if you run away, God's going to do something like send a big fish to course correct you. And um, that's not a bad message. I, I think it's, it's in the book. But again, if that's our main takeaway from the story of Jonah, I think we have missed the big idea. And we've missed out on how subversive and funny and profound this story actually is. So my hope this morning is that we can make sure that we don't miss out on any of that. Okay. So if you have your own Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at the whole thing, all four chapters. Um, It's uh, near the end of the Old Testament. It's a little hard to find because it's surrounded by a bunch of the little books. Uh, But I do encourage you to turn there, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your word, and we pray that right now uh, this story that we're about to read would not just be words on a page, but that your Holy Spirit would make it come alive and that you would speak uh, to our hearts through it. Uh, Open us up to be able to receive from this book. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because the wickedness has come up before me. Its wickedness has come up before me. 
But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now let's stop there. This should raise a question for us. Why doesn't Jonah want to go to the Ninevites? It's obviously not because he's lazy and he just wants to stay at home, right? Because the first thing he does when he gets this word from the Lord is he runs in the other direction. He leaves home. He tries to get as far from Nineveh as he can. Now, the text is going to eventually tell us why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Uh, But we have to be patient. It's not going to tell us yet. But for now, I just want you to keep that question in your mind. Why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? So, continuing verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Okay, so we'll stop here. Isn't it interesting what Jonah doesn't say? He doesn't say, well, if you want this storm to calm down, what you should do is turn the ship around, head back to where we came from so that I can go to Nineveh because that's what God really wants for me. He wants me to go to Nineveh. He doesn't say that, right? He says, If you want the storm to stop, throw me overboard. In other words, kill me. Now, what does this show us? This shows us that Jonah really doesn't want to go to Nineveh. I mean, we already knew that, but he really doesn't want to go to Nineveh. When faced with the option of either drowning at sea or going to Nineveh, he says, I'll drown. Now, remember, the question we're supposed to be keeping in mind, why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, we've already established, well, it's not because he wants to be comfortable, right? Because he leaves home. And now we know it's not because he's a coward. You know, you might think, oh, well, the reason he doesn't want to go is because Nineveh is a violent place and he's worried that if he goes, they're going to kill him or hurt him in some way. But this is a guy who is willing to drown at sea. He's willing to die. And I don't know, drowning doesn't sound to me like a very pleasant way to go, right? So it's not because he wants to be comfortable. So what is the reason? Well, keep holding the question in your mind. We'll get to the answer before too long. Continuing in verse 13. 
Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. So they actually turned down Jonah's offer to throw him overboard because they're worried. If we throw this guy overboard, he's, he, his God is, is serious, right? Maybe his God will be really angry at us and then we'll still die. So they don't take Jonah's advice. Uh, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now remember, I described this story as subversive, right? And what does subversive mean? Well, it means it's a story that takes the expected order of things and turns it upside down in order to make a point. And that's what's happening so far in this story, right? Because the expected order of things is for a prophet to be someone who fears and obeys God, right? But of course, Jonah is, is not fearing God, and he's not doing the right thing. He's disobeying God, right? And the expected order of things is for pagan Gentiles to be spiritually blind, okay? But notice, it's the pagan Gentiles who find out what Jonah has done, and they're the ones who are like, what are you doing, dude? Like, this is terrible. Why would you do this, right? And by the end of this passage, it's the pagan Gentiles who greatly fear the Lord and who are making sacrifices to God and making vows to him. And in the text, notice where it says, the men greatly feared the Lord, and Lord is capitalized. That means that in the original language, the word there is Yahweh, which means they are making vows and sacrifices to Israel's God, to the true God. So this is a, a subversive story. It upsets our expectations. Normally, prophet good, pagan Gentiles bad. It's upside down. It's reversed. Now, the significance of that is going to become clearer as we get more into the story. But for now, uh, we're just going to keep reading. Okay? So moving on to chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 is almost entirely a prayer that's spoken by Jonah from inside the whale. Um, the whale has, has swallowed him, right? And he's inside. And if I were to summarize Jonah's prayer here, it's very simple. It goes on for many verses. But all it is, is I was in trouble, I cried out to you, and you rescued me. That's it. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm sorry that when you called me, I ran in the other direction. Uh, he doesn't say, Lord, I'm your servant, I will now go to Nineveh. He doesn't say anything like that. He really just says, thanks for rescuing me, God. And he says something that suggests that he really hasn't been humbled yet, as he ought to. Uh, the last verse, verse 8, says, says this. And it might sound like a nice verse, but listen to what he says. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And I don't know about you, but I hear pride in these words. I mean, this sounds like an odd thing for a person to say who is in the belly of a whale because he's been disobeying God. 
Because the gist of what he's saying here is, other people do bad stuff, God, but I, I'm a good religious man. I make sacrifices to you. His prayer here actually reminds me of a story that Jesus told once about two people who went to the temple to pray, a religious leader and a tax collector. And when Jesus told this parable, it had a subversive quality to it, just like the book of Jonah, because ordinarily religious leaders are thought to be good, righteous people, and tax collectors are thought to be evil, bad people. And in the story, the, uh, re- the religious leader does the wrong thing, and the tax collector does the right thing. Uh, it says that these two men go to the temple to pray, and the religious leader says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, uh, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But then Jesus says that the tax collector prays, and he prays humbly, and he says very simply, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that of those two people, the one that goes home in good standing with God, on good terms with God, is the second one. The one who humbly acknowledges his need for God's grace and doesn't have this attitude of superiority, right, that I'm better than all these other sinners. Now, who does Jonah sound more like here? Anybody? (laughs) He sounds like the religious leader. He sounds like the Pharisee, right? I mean, Jonah's prayer is basically the same thing as the religious leader's prayer, right? I'm different from those sinners. I make sacrifices to you. I give a tenth of all I have, and I fast, right? So even though Jonah's prayer might sound pious and pretty, something in Jonah's heart isn't quite right. He's, he's being kind of arrogant for a guy who's stuck in the belly of a fish, because he's been disobedient to God. But even so, God is gracious to Jonah. He sustains his life in the belly of the fish, and then three days later, the fish vomits him up onto dry land, and he has miraculously survived this ordeal. Now let's continue in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, 
He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So God gives Jonah a second chance to go to Nineveh. This time, he obeys. And then Jonah becomes the most successful, reluctant prophet that there ever was, right? He shows up, and he doesn't have much of a sermon. Did you notice? He just says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Nothing in there about God. Nothing in there about the possibility of the city being spared. Nothing about the possibility of redemption. Just basically, you guys are in trouble. And it works, right? People are convicted of their sin. Even the king himself issues this decree that everyone should exhibit all the signs of repentance. And they go into this citywide period of mourning. And again, we see the subversive nature of this story, right? The, the turning upside down of the expected order of things. Because the expected order of things, right, is for prophets to be humble and repentant and for pagan Ninevites to be arrogant and wicked. But in this story, Jonah is the stubborn one, right? Jonah is the hard-hearted one. He hears the word of the Lord and he runs in the other direction. But the Ninevites hear this one-sentence prophetic word about how destruction is coming and they respond. They mourn. They repent. They hear the word of the Lord and they're humbled. Expected order turned upside down. Okay, so now we have come to my favorite part in the story. This is chapter 4. I love this. So Jonah's been a wildly successful prophet. You'd think he'd be happy, but he's not. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Okay, I said we'd get our answer, right, to why Jonah doesn't want to go to the Ninevites. And this is it. Here it is. It's not because he wanted to be comfortable. It's not because he's a coward. It's because he hates the Ninevites. <laughs> he tells us very clearly right here, why he did not want to go. Why did he not want to go? Because he was worried that if he went, they would repent and God would show them mercy. And Jonah wants one thing for the Ninevites. He wants them to experience the judgment of God. He wants them to burn, right? Jonah would rather die than see the Ninevites get saved. That's why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And so God says to him, Jonah, have you any right to be angry? Now, it's actually quite likely that Jonah did have legitimate reasons to be angry and to not like the, the Ninevites. Um, the Ninevites were a wicked, violent people. In fact, that's what it said at the very beginning of the, of the book, right? God said, go and preach to the Ninevites because their wickedness has come up before me. So they are a wicked people. And in fact, there is uh, evidence from history and archaeology that 
the Ninevites were extremely violent people and that they did things in war to their enemies that were uh, so vile that it would make your toes curl, you know, if I described it right now, which I'm not going to, but they, they did some really bad stuff. But even so, God asks Jonah the question, do you really have a right to be angry? And of course, the implied answer is no, right? Now, why does Jonah not have a right to be angry at God for showing mercy to the Ninevites? He doesn't have a right because God has shown mercy to him. He has been a rebellious, reluctant prophet. God said, you go this way, he went that way, right? And, and, and Jonah said, I would rather die than do what you're telling me to do. And yet, God was merciful to Jonah. You see, God's question here to Jonah is a way of, of gently saying, hey, Jonah, don't you think that you're being just a little bit hypocritical right now? See, Jonah's happy to receive God's grace if he is the recipient of it, but he doesn't want the Ninevites to receive it. So he's hypocritical. So now we've come to my favorite part of all, continuing in verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So you see what's going on here, right? Jonah still thinks there's a chance that God's going to destroy the city, and he wants a front row seat if that's going to happen. So he goes out of the city, and he sets up a little shelter, and he's watching, and he's waiting. And what he's hoping for is that fire's going to rain down from heaven, like with Sodom and Gomorrah, and incinerate the whole place. So he's eagerly watching and waiting. And then this is what happens. Uh, then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. And I'm pretty sure God intends for us to laugh at that. Okay, so if you think that's funny, God is pleased. Um, okay, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, what's this whole thing with the vine about? I think this is the best part of the story. I like the vine way more than the whale. <laughs> Whenever everyone wants to talk about Jonah, they talk about the whale. I want to talk about the vine. What God does through this vine is he exposes how selfish Jonah is. Right? He exposes how disordered Jonah's priorities are. Because Jonah cares more about a vine that gives him shade than about the salvation of 120,000 people. 
Now, it's easy for us to poke fun at Jonah, but the point of this story isn't to make us laugh at Jonah, it's to get us to examine ourselves. And I would say that this story challenges us to ask ourselves two questions. So if you're taking notes, uh, there's a place in your outline for this. I encourage you to write these down and to reflect on them. So the first question is this. Do I want people to turn to God and to experience his mercy? Do I want people to turn to God and experience his mercy? Or do I get more excited about people having to pay for what they've done? Jonah's far more interested in the Ninevites paying for what they've done, right? That's what he wants. He wants them to pay for their sins. But God is more interested in showing them mercy than in making them pay. So are we more like God, or are we more like Jonah? One of the things that I find really striking about the story of Jonah is how many similarities there are between the story of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, You probably know the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the most famous parables that Jesus taught. Um, But just in case you need a quick refresher, Uh, The story is about a man who had two sons, and the younger son said to him, I want my inheritance now, which is an extremely rude thing to do. It's kind of like saying, Dad, I just wish you were dead. I don't care about having a relationship with you. I just want your money. And the father obliges and gives him all that money, and then he goes off into a far country, and he blows all of the money on wild living, on, you know, partying and prostitutes and all that sort of stuff. And then when he hits rock bottom, he realizes he's run out of money. He thinks to himself, well, maybe my father would take me back if I worked as his servant. And so he, he, you know, feeling ashamed, returns to his home. And when the father sees his young son, he runs towards him and he embraces him and he shows him incredible mercy. He doesn't say, oh, I'll have you work for me. He restores all the rights and privileges of being a son to him. And he says, let's celebrate. Let's throw a party. You're back. I'm so happy. So just like in the story of Jonah, people are shown incredible mercy. Someone is shown incredible mercy in the story of the prodigal son. But also, just like in the story of Jonah, someone isn't happy about that. Uh, The older son So Jonah is like the older brother. The older brother in uh, the story of the prodigal son, he stayed with his father all these years, and he is so angry that the, the younger son isn't having to pay for his sins. He's so angry that as the party is happening, he is outside of the party, and he's refusing to go in. And then the father comes to him and says, My son... You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so what I want us to see is that the story of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son, they both ask us a question, which is, 
are we going to celebrate the mercy of God or are we going to demand that people pay? Are we going to be like the older brother? Are we going to be like Jonah? Are we going to be outside of the party, refusing to go in, arms folded, saying, this just isn't right? Are we going to be joyful or are we going to be grumpy? Are we going to celebrate God's mercy or are we going to insist on justice? Are we going to insist on people getting what's coming to them? Both stories tell us, choose mercy, choose forgiveness, choose joy. And then finally, here's the second question Jonah challenges us to ask. Do I recognize the value of human souls? Do I recognize the value of human souls? God certainly does. And, you know, maybe we do too, theoretically. But a lot of the time, like Jonah, we're more bothered by our vines getting cut down than by the thought of other human beings suffering. You know, we have to ask ourselves, do I get more upset when the Wi-Fi goes down or when I hear about poverty? Do I get more upset when the car in front of me is going too slow? Or when I think about my neighbor never knowing Christ? Do I get more upset when the gas prices go up? Or when I think about human trafficking? You know, do I get more upset when the air conditioning doesn't work? Or when I think about people, human souls, being separated from God? You know, whatever our vine might be, what Jonah, the book of Jonah says is people matter more than the vine, and they matter more to God. Even the people that we might not like, right? The wicked people, the sinners, the people that we deem ugly or vile or useless, they matter to God, the Ninevites. And we should be hoping for and working for and longing for their redemption, not their condemnation. And that's what Jonah's all about. Right? The, the real point of this story is not that a guy got swallowed by a fish. The real point of the story is that a prophet of God hated people so much that he needed to get swallowed by a fish in order to go to them. That's the point. And the point is that if we have similar hatred inside of us, if we don't value people the way that God does, God wants to change us. He wants us to experience his mercy, to share his mercy, and to celebrate that mercy. And hopefully, we won't need to be swallowed by a fish in order to learn that lesson. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for uh, the way that your word is funny sometimes and surprises us and goes against expectations. And Lord, we thank, we thank you that the purpose in this story of, of going against expectations is to remind us that you are a compassionate, graceful God, that if we turn to you, Lord, uh, you are ready to forgive and you desire our redemption far more than our condemnation. We celebrate that, Lord, and we pray that we would be the kind of people that embody and share that mercy with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.